you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey guys, I bet you like beer. Well, hey, beer is almost the universal beverage, right? There are so many countries around the world producing great beers. Well, you're in the right place for today's episode as I'm talking with a real beer expert and connoisseur, Mr. Don Tess. He's not only a BJCP certified beer judge, but an internationally acclaimed beer writer as well. Clearly, Don knows his stuff and his beers. We're going to be talking how great beers are judged at competition and what the judges look for, how to curate and put together a great beer list, the basics of serving beer and keeping it absolutely fresh for your customer, beer do's and don'ts, and the power of starting a mug club and the fierce customer loyalty, not to mention the social media impact a beer mug club can build. Your timing is great as it just so happens we at Restaurant Rockstars have launched a new product, How to Start a Mug Club. Get it now at restaurantrockstars.com. You'll find the link in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. So glad you're here. These are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. Today, I'm talking with Mr. Don Tess, and he is an internationally acclaimed beer expert and writer. So, beer is hot right now. Everybody drinks beer. Everyone loves beer. So you got to have beer. So Don, welcome to the show. Let's talk beer. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really exciting. Now, I understand that you have actually sampled 20,000 different beers from around the world. How long did that take? Uh, just a little over uh, just a little over 20 years. And uh, I'm, I'm actually nerdy enough that I keep tasting notes on every single beer that I that I taste. So, so you know, my number is legitimate. This isn't an estimated number. I know exactly how many beers I've had. Well, that's awesome. I certainly can't claim that. I belonged to a beer club at a restaurant once, and they did have beers from around the world. And obviously, you were rewarded for the most beers you drank, and they had sort of a punch card system. That was a long time ago. But you've certainly taken uh, my experiences to the next level. So I would not only consider you a beer expert, but you're really a connoisseur, aren't you? Uh yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly, you know, it's not a quantity, despite my big number, it's not a quantity thing for me. I do consider myself, um, you know, a foodie, and, and I consider beer to be part of that. Beer now has so many different flavors and, and so much complexity, or at least it can, uh, that, that you can explore it uh, in the same way you can explore, you know, wine or, or, or food or even any specific ingredient in food. Let me start by asking you your backstory. How did you get so interested in beer other than maybe enjoying beer uh, for many, many years? I mean, how did you really get into this? You know, the, the funny thing is that um, throughout my university days, I actually didn't enjoy beer. The time when, I, you know, stereotypically, I should have been doing keg stands and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, right. I didn't uh, like beer at all. Um, and then when I started my uh, my career and, and and started having a bit of money, uh, my prior career I used to be a lawyer, um, uh, and I started having some money. Then I I don't know exactly I don't recall exactly what prompted me to do it, but I tried a a, a local beer from a, a small brewery I've never heard of, 
And uh, it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was like a revelation moment for me, but it was kind of interesting. It was not like anything I, I tasted before. And then, um, you know, a couple of weeks after that, uh, I finally had what I would call my revelation moment. I had a beer from a brewery that uh, unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it was, it was just, um, you know, mind blowing. It was enigmatic in its, in the fact that it had light body and yet really dark, uh, roasted flavors. And, and that's something I'd never experienced before. And I thought, wow, like I never knew beer could be like this. And then ever since then I started, um, you know, seeking out new beers and, and I didn't start documenting my beers right that right then, but uh, very shortly after I started documenting my beers, trying to learn uh, everything I could about it. I'm still learning everything I can about it. And, uh, you know, fast forward 20 years later and 20,000 beers later, here I am. What would you say, uh, and this probably would be a well, maybe it's not a challenging question. Let me ask you, what are your favorites and how do you determine a truly great beer from the ordinary? Because there's so many choices out there. Yeah. Uh, beer you want to have, uh, you know, at a backyard barbecue is not the same beer you want to have over a dinner, you know, over a fancy dinner with, with friends, for example. Um, but to me, um, what makes a, great, a beer great is the same thing that makes a wine great. It will have uh, layers of complexity, yet all of those different flavors and nuances that are going on will be very well integrated and in balance. Um, using a musical analogy, there won't be any, you know, kind of off-key notes to it. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. tastes right. Um, the best beers to me are ones that have uh, a lot of complexity to them so that if I'm drinking them by myself and I want to think about it and analyze it and really get into the beer, I can, and yet are simple enough that if I'm having the beer with a friend and we're having a conversation about anything, the beer isn't intrusive either. It's not like we have, we have to sit there and talk about the beer. We can just enjoy it as well. Now, you are an internationally acclaimed writer, and you're also a certified beer judge. So can you tell the audience, how, how does beer get judged at, say, award competitions and this kind of thing? I mean, we see lots of advertising about award-winning this and acclaimed that, but how, how are beers actually judged in formal competitions? So um, it's all, it would almost always be done by panel, uh, so that personal biases can get, um, you know, get uh, muted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would always be by style. So, um, you know, the, uh, the largest competitions in the United States, for example, are the Great American Beer Festival Awards and the uh, World Beer Cup. And uh, they would have literally thousands and thousands of beers entered, and but they would all be entered into various categories, several, several, several dozen categories. And so, uh, if you're judging IPAs, for example, you will only judge IPAs against other IPAs. And then, what you're looking for is a beer that fits within the style parameters of that IPA. Presumably, that will be a good majority of them. And then from there, you know, once once there's no reason to dismiss the beer, i.e. it doesn't meet the, the qualifications of an IPA or have any kind of brewing fault, then it gets into these, these subtle nuances that the beer just tastes very good. Uh, it's these um, hard-to-pinpoint and hard-to-describe things that, that just make it wonderful, that you want more, and uh, those are the beers that, that tend to advance. 
and uh, and, um, uh, and and when you work, I should say I, I, I forgot to state explicitly these these awards these competitions are always judged by you never know what beer they're tasting, so these you know, commercial biases are removed. I definitely would have thought so. I was going to ask that if you didn't bring it up. And and the standards of preparation must be absolutely, um, well, standardized, I guess, right? I mean, the temperature yeah. that all these beers are kept so that each judge gets the exact same, you know, temperature and, and glass and, and all that sort of stuff, right? I mean, there's lots of criteria that go into that. I mean, just to make sure that uh, everyone... Well, everyone's palate is different, but they should get a uniform product to taste. Yeah, so they would have, um, all the competitions would have stewards behind the scene in a uh-huh. room that the judges are not allowed to go into. Yeah. So you can't see the labels, you don't see the pour. Mm-hmm. Typically, all of the beer, you know, uh, these beers get sent from around the country to a central location for the, uh, for the competition. So um, they're always stored at, uh, properly until the competition happens. They, they, they go to great pains to uh, make sure, um, you know, all the beers stretch as, as fairly as possible to the point where even with some competitions, studies have shown that if you're given, you know, five glasses of beer and they're numbered one, two, three, four, five, the human mind has preferences for ones and fives. And so uh, sometimes they, uh, they'll label the, the, the glasses with, uh, you know, geometric shapes rather than numbers just to even remove that sort of bias. Now, how, now do, do these competitions happen annually, and is it more than once a year? Or there's, you mentioned two different particular competitions. Yeah, the Great American Beer Festival competition happens annually. Yeah. The World Beer Cup competition happens every two years. Um, but there are literally hundreds of, of uh, competitions around the world um, covering different, different scopes. Some of them may... Uh, have beers from other countries. Some of them may be limited to beers just from that country. I've heard of, uh, or even state, I've, you know, there are California beer awards, there are Oregon beer awards, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. Typically, they would be annual. Okay. Um, there are a couple that would be biannual. And there are a range, of, uh, a range of producers, obviously, that we're going to get into craft beer in a moment, but clearly the craft beer industry has exploded. It's really been hot for over two decades. You know, when I first started uh, my restaurants, and that was 25 years ago, it's like we had to have craft beers then, and they were just then starting to displace domestics in terms of market share and just the, the appeal, and, and that has really continued, and different pockets of the country have, you know, popped up that seem to specialize in craft beer. Certainly Oregon comes to mind, Portland, Maine is a huge craft beer locale, and there's several others as well. Yeah, San Diego, uh, Texas, Colorado, they're all, they're all hotbeds of craft beer. And would you say that the craft beer predominates at these competitions or do you still see the major domestic manufacturers there as well? Uh, it, it would depend on the competition. Yes, craft beer would, would, would typically dominate, but for example, the Great American Beer Festival does have a category for uh, domestic light lager and, uh, uh, you know, the Budweiser's and such of the world, uh, you know, could win those. Although, some of the craft brewers are actually getting a little bit cheeky and making a beer in those styles and entering them uh, in those categories and being being the big guys. So um, I think they do it more out of, of, of spikes than anything else. Yes, yes. 
Well, you know, Samuel Adams comes to mind. One, because I'm born and raised in Massachusetts, but they kind of made a big splash quite a while ago, and I think it was at one of these international or at one of these beer competitions, and then they started to tout that in all their advertising, and they quickly gained a following, and that company has done quite well. Yes, yes, very, very well, yeah. So let's get into, you know, our audience, of course, of restaurants, bars, hotels, that sort of thing. You know, even new restaurants. I work with a lot of new restaurant clients that are just starting their first restaurants. And I remember what it was like when I was starting my first place and I had to curate a beer list and figure out of all these choices, what, you know, what criteria I needed to offer my customers. Where do you begin, Don? So I think the first thing you want to do, and, and, you know, it's not dissimilar to how you would curate uh, a wine list, I think, but I think the first thing you do is you... Uh, think about how many beers you want to have. Uh, there certainly are restaurants that you know would have as few as as two. I, I would say that's probably too low. But you know, if you want half a dozen beers, uh, there are that that's fine. There are restaurants that you know literally have, have books of beers in the same way as some restaurants have books uh, for a wine list. Um, but I would say you need at least you know, half a dozen to two dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, uh, make sure you're, you're uh, covering a broad range of styles. So a similar way that you wouldn't have, if you have a wine list of a dozen wines, you wouldn't have 12 Cabernet Sauvignons. Just make sure you're not having 12 IPAs. Have a broad range of Pilsners and Stouts and, and uh, you know, Brown Ales. Um, I think that uh, the, the the craft beer movement is very much uh, built around the the local sporting local uh, concept lately, and so uh, I think it's good to have something local, uh, but not at the expense of quality. There, unfortunately, with the explosion in craft beer over the last few years, there are um, you know there are some breweries that don't have the best quality. Do make sure you're tasting every beer before you put it on your beer menu. Um, But notwithstanding that that local movement, uh, people like comfort too. Uh, So there are people who are a little bit less experimental. And so have a national brand, have something like Sam Adams or Sierra Nevada, where if a person doesn't want to have, uh, you know, a beer from a brewery they've never heard of, uh, there, there's something familiar there as well. Um, then, you know, again, the same way you would think about your 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 wine menu, think about uh, think about your cuisine and match your beer to that. So, you know, if you are having a, uh, an Italian restaurant and you want to have only uh, Italian wine, similarly, um, seek out Italian craft beer. And, I, and specifically, I, w- I want to say you want to have craft beer. The, um, you know, there's nothing unique about using my Italy example. There's nothing unique about Peroni or or Nastro Zero. They're, you know, they taste almost identical to Budweiser or whatever. Um, there is good beer from practically every country in the world now. So if you're having a, a Spanish restaurant, you can find very good Spanish beer. Uh, if you're having an Italian restaurant, you can find Italian very good Italian beer, et cetera, et cetera. So, so um, you know, do match your, your beer uh, to your cuisine. Those would be my kind of top 
Let me ask you, uh, okay, so craft beers, well, before I go there, how about this? You mentioned something that just triggered a thought a second ago. There are a lot of restaurants and bars that use their draft beer program as sort of a marketing hook to get customers in the door, build a following, that kind of thing. And I am aware of several places that have upwards of 30 to 50 individual drafts on tap. And what yeah. risks do you run into with modern-day glycol systems and that sort of thing? Like, what is the shelf life of a keg of beer, even with the most up-to-date pouring system? And if you're not moving every one of those frequently every single week, does it really make sense to have that many taps? Or can you pretty much get by with the system and still pour beer fresh? Yeah, so that absolutely is a big concern. I have been to uh, you know, bars like you're describing. Uh, and some of them do a great job of it. They obviously have enough uh, volume sales that everything is still fresh and tastes great. But um, but uh, old beer, you know, is definitely a problem. Uh, so if you can't turn over a keg in, you know, two to three weeks at most, um, uh, you know, it's not gonna it's gonna start deteriorating. Keg beer does tend to last longer than, um, you know bottled beer, uh, the reason being that the, the whole dispensation system is driven by CO2, so as you empty the keg, the, the space in the keg is being filled with CO2, which helps protect the beer. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. The other, yeah, the other thing with um, uh, long, with, uh, with uh, these bars that have multiple tap, you know, I call them multi-taps, that's the, that's the phrase that, that people use. The other problem that many multi-taps have is, is line cleaning. The more kegs you have, typically the larger your refrigeration room has to be, and therefore lo the longer your draft lines have to be, and therefore the longer, the more beer is in a draft line, That's, mm -hmm. in the line itself, the, right. the distance between the keg and the tap. So when you clean the lines, you lose all the beer that's in the line. You basically have to empty the line, put a chemical in it, run some done some uh, rinse through it and all that. And so um, a lot of multi-taps don't clean their lines often enough. You know, ideally uh, a bar should be, or a bar or restaurant should be cleaning its draft line every week. And um, some of these uh, multi-taps aren't doing that. And you can taste it in the beer. And it's not because the beer is getting old. It's because the line is getting dirty. Right, um, right. You know, small amounts of mold or, or, mm -hmm. or other chemicals that or things can grow in there. And the beer just tastes, tastes off. Yeah, that's a real balance. I remember when I was in the business and my, my draft suppliers definitely were on top of the cleaning. And it was a real balance to strike between every time they clean the lines, you're wasting quite a bit of beer. But you're providing yep. the freshest product to the customer, so it's in the best interest of the supplier to clean the lines as frequently as possible because you're buying more beer. And it's in your best interest, obviously, to serve the freshest beer to the customer, even if it costs you a little bit more off of your bottom line. So I'm really glad you answered that question. Let's talk about um, – you, you suggest that we should – uh, as owners or bar managers, whatnot, sourcing from multiple suppliers. Why would you say that's important? Is it because only because of variety, or why would you say? In part, it's variety, but I also it's well known in the beer industry that um, there are some breweries that quote uh, pay to play. They'll go in and and you know 
say, if you carry our beer exclusively, then we'll give you this incentive or whatever. And uh, I certainly don't know what the laws are in every state. Right. But, it does vary, uh, but it's pro- yeah, yeah but, it's probably illegal in every state. Yeah. Well, uh, to a certain extent, I know that you're allowed a certain dollar amount that isn't considered to be you know, exclusive or collusion or any of that kind of stuff. But I know in certain states, they've definitely sort of cracked down on that because, yeah, yeah. it's all about building market share. I know that distributors want lot, you know, as many, as much, uh, you know, exposure as they can get and number of taps and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's an interesting topic you brought up. I'll let you continue on that. Yeah, no, so they, um, you know, uh, it's, it's illegal. Uh, there are, it, it still goes on. It's kind of a, you know, the world's worst kept secret that, that this goes on. Um, but, you know, the financial uh, issue aside and, and the risk of being caught and fined aside, uh, the beer community takes great offense to this, that, that this goes on. And so if, you, if, a, if a beer consumer walks into a bar or a restaurant and they see, you know, of 12 taps of beer, all of them come from one distributor, mm-hmm. they get suspicious. And that maybe yep. that suspicion is not well founded, but I will say they get suspicious. So you know, in addition to uh, uh, offering your your customer a better variety, I just think you present better too. That you, you know, we've curated this beer list for you, our customer. And we've done it on the basis of caring for you and providing you the best flavor, not on the basis of who paid us the most money. Sure. I remember, and this goes back 20 plus years when I was starting my first place, and I went to, I was at a ski resort, and I was starting, you know, a restaurant and a bar at a major New England ski resort, so I traveled out of state to other ski resort states and and went to some of my favorite places that I used to travel to, and I sort of interviewed the managers and owners of these places, and I got a sense of, okay, a ski crowd is a ski crowd is a ski crowd, you know, what are some of the beers that I absolutely must have, and that's kind of how I started my list, and it started there, which was pretty dead solid on target, and then over time, my customers would request certain things. And when we heard from a number of people, why don't you carry X and such, then we certainly honored our customers' requests. And that's how our beer list grew. And, and that was, you know, sort of our strategy to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, unfortunately, I actually think that's fairly rare. Very often when I go to a restaurant and ask, you know, what kind of beer uh, they have, I, I get kind of a dismissive response. So, uh, you know, in any other aspect of, of running a restaurant, you would always listen to your customers. So, and so it should be with beer as well. Let's go back to something we talked about earlier. You talked about, you know, well, obviously storage comes to mind because the more tap lines you have, the bigger refrigeration system you need, a, you know, a big room that's a, a beer dedicated walk-in. We had one and the kegs were stacked three, you know, three barrels high and we had 18 um, different draft lines. So, you know, obviously that room got pretty challenging because we were limited by space and the bartenders had to climb over kegs to change empties and all that sort of thing. And the empties would be lined yeah. up down the back hallway for pickup. It was, it was always gratifying to see how much beer we poured, but storage was clearly an issue. And that was just on the draft side. We also had multiple refrigeration coolers for bottles. In your expert yeah. opinion... Is it more important to have a, a more extensive bottle selection versus tap, or is it more important to have more taps than bottles? And that obviously varies based on storage, but 
if all things were equal, what would you recommend there? You know, and, and the other thing with uh, with that is having uh, matching glassware and everything. And so yeah. the more beers you have, the more glassware you need to uh, maintain and everything. Um, but that said, you know, on the uh, uh, when I'm a customer, I'm more worried about getting a good beer to accompany my meal. And I'm less concerned about it being... Uh, on draft or on bottle. If if, if you've got a good selection, uh, you know, I'm happy to to to, to, to receive it, um, you know, from any vessel that's that that it comes in. So you wouldn't necessarily be aware of a consumer preference bottle versus keg, you know, or draft beer. Would you say it's an equal thing where some people just prefer it in a bottle and on other people just rather have it as a draft? Yeah, I, I, I think it's exactly that. I think some people do prefer bottles or, or cans, and some people do prefer draft. Uh, I will, you know, as I previously mentioned, that uh, kegs do tend to protect beer better. Uh, so a draft beer that's, you know, a, a keg of, of beer that's three months old, theoretically, will taste a little bit better than a bottle of beer that's three months old. But that said, there's, you know, the other factors that we already talked about in terms of line cleaning and everything. So, uh, you know, if it's a restaurant that I've never been to, I don't know if they clean their lines. Uh, I trust them to, just yeah. like I trust them to wash their plates and everything. Right. Uh, so I will certainly drink a draft beer, um, but I don't know that I personally have a preference, and, uh, and I think the consumers are, are mixed on it. Just a, you know, it, these are just questions that are just popping into my mind as I sort of revisit my lengthy restaurant owner career and now transitioning yep. to the digital world, no longer owning restaurants. And I want to give my audience the benefit of not only your experience, but just any of these uh, topics that just sort of come up. So I'm not meaning to throw you curveballs. I think you've been great at answering all of these. It's interesting to me that there are are lots and lots of breweries in this country. You might consider these your grandfather's beers that have come and gone. They were around for decades, and then they were displaced for a variety of reasons. And then there's almost been a resurgence of certain brands that your grandfather may have you know, had and enjoyed back in the day. And now they're just as popular as ever. You know, the, the Pabst Blue Ribbons and the Narragansetts and the Rolling Rocks and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's found a new audience, even though it's considered like an old school beer. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, not exactly sure I understand, you know, why that is. If I understood what causes trends, I'd be a lot wealthier than I am. Sure. Uh, but, but absolutely true, yeah. Let's talk about things to avoid, things that drive beer lovers crazy. What are some of those things? I'm really curious to know. Yeah, so most importantly, you know, the beer has evolved now, and people have expectations of beer. Uh, it should be treated with the same respect as, as uh, any other aspect of, of your restaurant. So what drives me crazy as a consumer is if I... If I go into a restaurant and I say, you know, what what beer do you have? A beer? Mix? I will always I will always ask for a beer list. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if the server says no, what do you want? That drives me crazy because uh, you know if I ask for a food menu, no restaurant would dare say, you know, no. What do you feel like eating? And I'll tell you if we have it. 
So, you know, just make a list, um, educate the staff so that they, they can speak intelligently about uh, each beer that you offer. Uh, if you're not a beer expert, very often breweries will come in and do staff education for you. Um, but, you know, again, drawing an analogy, if a customer came in and, and said, uh, what kind of soup do you have or what's your soup of the day, uh, it would never be acceptable for the server to say, I don't know, but it's hot. So right, right. Uh, similarly, if, if the person says, what beer do you have or, or what does this beer taste like, uh, it's absolutely not acceptable to say, I don't know, it doesn't matter, they all taste the same <laughs> or whatever. Those types of things drive me crazy. Even if you do have a beer list, uh, make sure you have the proper name of the brewery and the beer style on there. Uh, you know, again, with a wine list, you would have the name of the vineyard and the name of the uh, uh, wine style, or you can break it down, break the menu down into wine style. So similarly with uh, with beer, not good enough to just have a beer list that says IPA on there. Which IPA? I want to know which IPA. And similarly, it's not good enough to have a beer list that says Sam Adams on there, because Sam Adams makes 75 different beers. You need to say which Sam Adams beer. And, um, you know, if you have, assuming you've done all that, make sure you actually have those beers. And if you run out, which is fine, because you know everybody has an inventory problem every now and again, um, be able to suggest a substitute. Don't just presume and bring uh, another beer. So that certainly happens to me uh, as a consumer, not infrequently. Uh, pardon my awkward English there, but you know, not infrequently, if I order a Sam Adams IPA, for example, and the restaurant's out of it, they'll bring me a Sam Adams Amber, which is a completely different beer style. Yes, yes. And, and they will have already opened it or whatever, so I can't really send it back, although I will. I will send it back. Well, yeah, and, you're, uh, and, and you, you would have every right to do so. You're absolutely talking about the importance of training and customer service that all begins with really strong product knowledge. And training is, you know, neglected in, in many cases, which is unfortunate. I'm a huge advocate for training. We used to train our staff yeah. something every single day. But certainly, whenever a new person was hired, and obviously all our veterans are very well versed in our entire wine list, our beer list. We, we ha had regular tastings on all these things. We gave them specific notes on pairings with certain food. Because, yeah, yeah let's face perfect. it, the, the consumer is really sophisticated right now. And someone who really appreciates beer like yourself, goes into a restaurant, they know what they like, they know what they want, and you can't put something over on them, and you really need to understand, and oh gosh, you're talking about a huge pet peeve. You never want to give a, a customer an I don't know answer. You know, you should definitely be well right. informed, and it's a negative impression to go to have to ask the manager or the owner, well, what what about this, and what about that? So you just can't have too much training, and that, that eliminates 90% of these pet peeves with customers, because... Yeah, people are sophisticated today. They really are. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the only thing worse than an I don't know answer is an answer that's a lie. Yes, uh, just made know, up it, off the cuff. Just or, made up, yep. Yeah, or like you said, substituting something just because the, the you know, the producer is the same, let's say. And that would yeah, be just, that it, would be a complete turn off to me. I, I totally get that. And, the, and a restaurant would never do that in... in you know, in the wine world, if you ordered a layer cake Malbec, 
they would never bring you a later take Cabernet Sauvignon, for Very example. True. If you are serving beer from a container, either a bottle or a can, uh, always provide a glass. Maybe the, the customer will use it, maybe they won't. I always will, but um, it always bothers me when you know they don't bring a glass. Sometimes they will ask, would you like a glass? Uh, and sometimes they won't ask, in which case I'll have to ask for a glass. And that's not a big deal, but um, you know, you wouldn't serve wine from the bottle and no. to drink it from the bottle, so similar with beer. Sure, and that's just that's just a better level of service. Provide the pint glass or, or the proper glass for the beer, and if the customer declines, that's entirely their choice, but it's better service to provide that. Absolutely. You know, this is interesting. I want to talk about marketing a little bit because you just triggered a, a, a memory that I had that was a real hook for a place that had quite a few beer taps. And I just stumbled upon this place, and this goes back decades, but I was at a ski resort in the state of Vermont, and I sat down at the bar, and what knocked my socks off was they had a conveyor belt behind the bar that went underneath the beer taps. And it made that click, click, click sound, you know, and, and it was loaded with pint glasses. And as I look to the left, there's a hole in the side of the building, Don, and all the pint glasses are literally going out into the sub-zero night. And this conveyor belt went around the back of the building and it came in on the right side. And now you've got all these frosty chilled pints. And I watched the bartender <laughs> pick up a glass off the conveyor belt that had just gone outside. And he pours you the freshest, coldest beer you ever had. And that to me was just such a tremendous hook. And it got such a claim just because of that one thing. Yeah, that's cool. Right? Wasn't that wicked cool? That's very cool. cool. Yeah, and, and that also brings up mug clubs. You know, we've just launched a product uh, on how to start a mug club because we had tremendous success growing the affinity to our bars and restaurants by building these membership clubs that had VIP service. And, you know, it all started with an idea, of course. We started with 100 mugs, and then the next year it grew to like 200, and then we went to 450. And when I sold my place uh, several years ago, I think they were topped out at about 900 mugs, which was this huge thing. But the big kicker is the personal service that my bartenders, and to this day I still don't understand how they could literally learn hundreds of people's names and their mug numbers, and recognize these people when they walked in the door and know exactly what they were drinking. And the service went to the point where literally as soon as somebody walked through the door that belonged to this club, one of the bartenders would recognize them, pull their mug, pour yeah. their favorite beer, and now this beer is literally poured before they even get to the bar. And in a lot of cases, yeah. the club became so popular, and all these people became such close friends that you would hand the beer to Joe, who is mug number 128, and Joe would hand it to number 234, and it would make its way through the crowd to Bill, who just walked through the door, who might be number 502. It was unbelievably astounding. And if that didn't make social media history and get posted all the time and be a real brand builder... So not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, we just launched a course for other restaurants and bars, how to start a mug club. So you've probably yep. come across this in, in restaurants you've seen. It's not a new trend, certainly, but it's a great way to build affinity with your customer and really promote a beer program. Absolutely. And, and of course, create customer uh, customer loyalty. You know, if they've, they've got choices of places where to go, and of course, they're going to go where, where A, they get special treatment and, and B, they know there's going to be something that they like there. Uh, and that's what, you know, mug clubs are, are perfect for that. Absolutely. 
How about some resources to learn more? Are there any things that we missed that you'd still like to talk about that uh, would be interesting to the audience, Don? Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 tons to know about beer, obviously. I've spent the last 20 years <laughs> learning about it, and, and I continue to do continue to do so. But uh, what I did want to share with, with your listeners is that, you know, if, if, if they are um, intimidated by, by the explosion in beer, don't know where to start, there are a bunch of resources that are available, uh, many of which are free. Um, the Brewers Association, which is uh, an American association uh, that uh, lobbies on behalf of independent brewers, the Brewers Association uh, has tons of free uh, uh, materials on uh, how to take care of beer, how to manage a draft line, how to clean draft lines, how to do food and beer pairings uh, and stuff like that. Um, there's a program called Cicerone, that's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-E, that is a beer uh, service program where it actually certifies beer servers and certifies Cicerones. So the idea is uh, is to mirror the similar programs, the, similarly the sommelier programs that wine has. And uh, Cicerone also has, I believe, some free materials on their website. Um, so, you know, craft beer is huge now. I think restaurants really need to take notice of it. And uh, there's no excuse not to. There's plenty of resources out there to, to help you out. I really appreciate all that information. Let me ask you one last question, Don, before uh, we close the podcast. We talked a little bit, you know, we, we made some comparisons between, you know, wine preferences and beer and that sort of thing and the importances of service and what a customer expects. Would you say that it's important to have different uh, glassware for different styles of beer. I know there are such things as Pilsner glasses and a pint glass is pretty standard and typical, but is there a wide range of glassware for different beer styles and how extensive does a, a restaurant or a bar need to go into that? Uh, so absolutely there are different beer styles for uh, different types of beer. There's IPA glasses, there are stout glasses, there are Pilsner glasses. Uh, and again, similar to wine, there are you know Riesling glasses and Burgundy glasses. Um, but I don't think it's essential. I think uh, I think if you um, want to provide an uh, you know an ideal experience for your client, then you would have all those glasses available. M- maintaining all that glassware, as with wine glassware, it, you know can be problematic. So uh, as long as you have a good glass, the, the worst thing is is what we, what we call a shaker pint. Yeah, that straight wild pint. Mm-hmm. It doesn't capture any aroma or anything like that. Those those types of uh, glasses aren't great, although I recognize why restaurants use them because they're stackable and durable and everything. Um, so, you know, I think I'm getting a little bit off track here, but, no, no, uh, no. you know, there's tons of glassware available if you want to have it. I don't think it's absolutely essential, just like a restaurant might have only a red wine glass and a white wine glass. You know, if you have one or two different uh, uh, beer glasses that that would be fine as a last resort actually wine glasses work perfectly good for for beer uh, because they're bulbous because they kind of close up uh at the top they you know the purpose of that is capture aroma uh the stem keeps your fingers off of the uh, bowl so you don't change the temperature of the wine in the glass uh so all of those all of the attributes of a wine glass actually work quite well for beer so 
if you don't want to have uh, separate glassware for for your beers, wine glass will work just fine. Awesome. I just thought of one more question. I hate to keep doing this to you, but let's no, talk fine. about <laughs> your mind, Don. <laughs> Not at all. I love talking about beer. Let's talk about potency. I know there are there are lots of different styles, and each has sort of a different alcohol content. What determines that? Um, and are all styles pretty much uniform in terms of alcohol content? And what are some of the ones that have the highest alcohol content? And, uh, you know, what are some of the benefits and risks of carrying some higher potency beers in your establishment? They, they're used to, it used to be the case that certain beer styles had, um, you know, fairly well-defined alcohol content. An IPA would be around 6%, for example. Now people are making, you know, I think it's with all these, there are now over 7,000 breweries in the United States and everybody's trying to differentiate themselves. And so people are doing what they're calling imperial uh, IPAs or imperial cells or imperial pilsners, for example. All that imperial term meaning uh, higher alcohol content. So now you get you can get IPAs, you know, ranging up 8, 9, 10%. I've had triple IPAs that get into you know, 11, 12%. Um, the, there's, I had a beer one time that was 46% alcohol. Wow, uh, really? Yeah, it's utterly bizarre. At the end of the day, the most important thing is, is flavor. The alcohol content shouldn't be a pursuit in and of itself. But that said, the craft beer drinker does tend to like a higher alcohol content beer for whatever reason. The, these imperial styles do tend to be uh, selling very very well. You you should if you are doing uh, if you are offering beer on draft, you should take the alcohol content into consideration and offer not offer but you know what should be on the menu is a smaller pour for a larger for a higher alcohol content beer. Of course, you know with with uh, liability laws on on drinking and driving and sure. all that, right. um, you know you're responsible for it. So. And again, staff education. The staff needs to know that if they're serving somebody a ten percent beer and the person orders four of them, yes, uh, you yep. know you need to cut them off. Just just like you wouldn't serve them four bottles of wine, you exactly. can't serve them, you know, four of those beers. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, there people seem to think bigger is better right now. I know, right? And whether it's a higher potency beer, I'm also noticing a predominance in certain local establishments where I live where they're serving a wide variety of beers in 16-ounce cans now. Yes. And that I don't seems know if to that's be popular. driven by a value thing or, or hmm. why that is. But, uh, but yeah, every, everything does seem to be getting bigger. Well, I certainly enjoyed having you on the show, Don. You've been a wealth of information about beer and the beer world and all the nuances of pouring beer and curating a beer list and, you know, what determines a great beer from an average beer and whether you should have domestics. We've been all over the place, but I think we learned quite a bit. And again, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Well, that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Listeners, thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.